consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. I want to, again, as I often will do, in fact, usually will do, uh, review briefly what's brought us to this point, especially, again, as I shared with you many times, that the chapter divisions within our Bibles were not present when the epistles were written or the letters were written or any of the, the book was written. And so we have to remember that. And, and as we, chapter 3, here's a division, yet it's continuing um, to build upon the thought and truth that we find in chapter 2, and more specifically, that which we've just read even last week and the week prior in chapter 2 concerning Christ as the merciful and faithful high priest. And he continues, the writer continues this thought and expounding on this truth within these following verses, the ones which we read uh, this evening. And so last week, if you recall with me, we, we evaluated the final statements of chapter 2, and we actually went back to that because we, the week prior we'd already dealt with those verses, but then we went back to it to look a little more so into the truth of the merciful and faithful high priest, uh, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. And during our study, we considered, of course, our Lord's mercy towards us as one who took on himself the form of flesh and his faithfulness to the Father in his position as high priest. If you're looking at verse 16 of chapter 2, he said, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. And the verb took, if I reminded you last week, that it means to, hold, uh, to take hold of or to grasp. And unlike the fallen angels who are condemned to eternal damnation with no way of escape, Christ came in the flesh to lay hold on to man to rescue and redeem him by the only means of which this was possible. And that was that he became flesh. That's the importance of the humanity of Christ, that he literally took on the flesh. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews, further in the book, we read where the scripture says that that veil, which is to say his flesh, talking about the veil that was rent in the, temp was rent in the temple the day that Christ died. Again, the emphasis of that, many things can be stated concerning that veil being rent in the temple from top to bottom, if you recall. First of all, of course, it's the Lord who rent the temple veil. It wasn't man. But you could say, well, it's by the... the at the death of Christ, when he died, the veil was rent, opening up the most holy place, as the tabernacle or temple would have been, opening up the most holy place into the very presence of God himself, and that was through the Lord Jesus Christ. But the scriptures even clarify that more so for us as to why the veil was rent, because Hebrews is teaching us, of course, again, that Christ is better. He's better than the high priest, the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. He is better than the tabernacle. He is better than the, the sacrifices. He's, uh, he's better in every possible way. He's better than the angels. He's better communic God communicate through he who is better, Christ himself, the word. And so we understand Christ is better, but he's better than what? Well, he's better than all the types and shadows that were pointing to him. And so when you look at the veil that was rent, and it says that veil, which is to say his flesh, the reason the veil in the, in the temple was rent that day that Christ died 
is due to the fact that the, that was only a shadow or type of the true veil. What is the true veil? The very flesh of Jesus. So when his flesh was rent, when he suffered, when he died, there was no longer a need for the type and shadow because now the way into the holiest of all was made apparent and manifested through the suffering, the death of the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the fact that he came in the flesh, grasped and took hold of the flesh is of the utmost significance and importance. And it must never be overlooked or, or misunderstood. This was not, it, it's not simply, and some people, I was talking last week, I think, concerning this to someone, but some people view this, many times I've, I've heard statements made, or you may have heard things said as well, to where it's almost like, this is just how God chose it to be. Well, no, this is what was necessary. This is what had to be. Now, God could have, in eternity, quote-unquote, past, chosen to do however he chose so to do. But it's not simply God chose. No, the, the Christ coming in the flesh was a necessity. It had to be. And that flesh was the true veil, which now made manifest the very holy of holies, the very entrance and access into the very presence of God in all of his glory through the person, through the flesh of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a significant reality and, and, and truth that Christ came in the flesh and died in the flesh. We saw also last week that he took hold of and to grasp not only in taking on the flesh, but he ruled and reigned over his flesh because we could never rule and reign over our own. In John six thirty eight, again, Jesus said, for I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. He also took our sin upon himself and became the atonement because we could not. First Peter 2, 21 through 24. And we will not read all the verses, but I do want to read these in, in review because I believe they're tremendously significant to the point of what's being stated. For even here unto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who then, who when we, he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, to God the Father, is what he's saying. Verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. By the way, this is a reference to Isaiah 53, and this is not physical healing. Ultimately, will be physical healing in a glorified body, but this is not talking about your physical healing in this life you live right now. This is talking about a spiritual healing, a spiritual life that is now present through the sufferings and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, he says... He bore, his, or bore our sins in his own body, flesh. That's what's being spoken of here. It required his flesh. That, was, that is so important. Verse 17, we go on to read of chapter 2 of Hebrews. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Our merciful and faithful high priest identified with us. And I'm, again, we're not going to read all these verses we look last week and even more, but just to reference them, he was born of a woman, Matthew. Four, uh, verse 38, he knew what it was to be tempted in Luke 4, 2. He knew the burden of sin, although he never sinned, 1 John 3, 5. And so our merciful and faithful high priest 
identified with us as human beings. He experienced pain as we experience pain. In the flesh, that is. He, he, did, not, he did not, though he could have, he did not escape that for himself. He did not, uh, he did not eliminate that for himself. He didn't go through some facade of, of, of or semblance of what it would be like. No, he suffered. He was tired. He was hungry in the flesh. Though he, though he is the one who created all things, yet he experienced, humbled himself. That's the humility of Christ, the Messiah. He humbled himself to become flesh and be manifested in the flesh that he might identify with us and that he might bear our sin, that he might take as God's perfect atonement, take our sin away as, it was, as God's wrath and justice was satisfied through the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. But remember, the death of Christ is not the death of God. You, obviously, it's the flesh of Christ that died. The person of Jesus did not die. The flesh of Jesus died. That part of him, the flesh, literally died. But that also helps us to remember that you will never be just obliterated. You in the flesh, your flesh will die, but you will continue on, whether it be in an, in an eternity with our Lord or in an eternity separated from him. But yet, it's not that you one day will just be annihilated and all ends. And so uh, we, we understand that that he suffered on our behalf. He identified with us. Also, our, our merciful and faithful high priest, as I mentioned, is faithful to his office, and we're going to look more into this tonight, even in the text. But First John 2, 1 and 2 states, My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. So over the past few weeks of our study through chapter 2, we discovered the importance, as we even emphasized again this evening, of the humanity and the deity of Christ. Again, what's referred to as the hypostatic union of Christ. These two together, fully God, fully man. We have seen that our high priest is a merciful, he is a faithful, and an understanding high priest. He understands. The writer has introduced us to the character of our great high priest and now continues by pointing us to him and his faithfulness in this office. Now, this is defined not by his faithfulness to us. It's not. But his faithfulness to the one who called him to that office, the Heavenly Father. We realize that the one who called him is our Heavenly Father. His Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father, as followers and believers in Christ. Look at verse 1 again with me of chapter 3 now. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling... Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Wherefore, meaning, therefore, or from which, because Christ is merciful and faithful. So he's saying, based on these truths, based on the statements you have just read, based on that which you just stated, the writer says, wherefore, because, therefore, from which, Christ is merciful and faithful because he identifies with us, because he is committed to the purpose of God, our Heavenly Father, because he understands us, because he is faithful and merciful, let us consider him. He goes on to say, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. It is only because Christ is our merciful and faithful high priest that we are made to be partakers in this calling, that we have fellowship, that we are partners in this calling. 2 Peter 1, 1-4. Simon Peter, a servant, 
and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pause there for a moment. Here Peter says, oh, you've obtained like precious faith, the same faith that is precious. You've obtained that. How? Through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and, our, and of Jesus our Lord. Again, notice the emphasis here. Through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, you have obtained like precious faith. Then he says, you've also received grace and peace which is multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and our, our Jesus our Lord. And then he goes on in verse 3 to say, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So three times already, it's through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, through the knowledge and through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby, he says in verse 4, are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So here, Peter makes it very clear that as the writer of Hebrews states, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Peter is clarifying, and we see this already stated in the previous verses of Hebrews, chapter 2 and now chapter 3, 1, we see that the only way that we could possibly be made partakers of this calling of the divine nature is through the faithfulness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, and through knowledge of him that we therefore who've been called to glory and virtue might be partakers of this divine nature through Christ. Simon Peter makes it clear it is through Christ. Three times he states that, that we are called and made to be partakers. This literally means that we've been made to share. Partakers is to share, to be a partner of the divine nature. Now, don't misunderstand that. That does not mean that we have ever been nor will ever become gods. Of course we're not. But we have now partaken of the divine nature. How is that so? Through Christ, we are now in Christ. Christ is in us, and his spirit dwells in us. This is the divine nature, and now we are identified in Jesus, who is the divine one. And so because of our identity with Christ and in Christ, we have become partakers of this nature. Though it is not our nature, it's that we are partners in this nature. So it's not we become this, it's that we are now partners and share in the nature of Christ. Let me explain that to you a little further. This will probably uh, click a little bit with you when I say this. Ready? We are called to and are declared to have what? The mind of Christ. You know what that is? That's being a partner of the divine nature. If we have the mind of Christ, it's only because Christ dwells in us that that mind is now present and we are capable of thinking and understanding spiritual truth and thinking with an eternal worldview and biblical worldview because we now possess the mind of Christ or we possess the Holy Spirit who then provides us the mind of Christ. So this means that we now share. The Apostle Paul as well addressed this heavenly or high calling in Philippians 3.14 when he stated, 
I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So here we find in this passage, Paul is speaking of the continual desire and pursuit of living in the truth of this high calling of God in Christ. In the surrounding verses of the chapter, in chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul admitted to his own inability to attain to this calling, yet as well proclaimed his undying desire and endless pursuit to know and pursue this calling or purpose of God as God had provided for him to do so in Christ. And again, I don't want to belabor the point, but remember with me, if you will, that Paul had provided in Philippians this impressive resume again, uh, a Hebrew, uh, born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, touching the law, none to compare to him. And he says, if anyone, can boast, if anyone has a right to boast in the flesh, Paul says, it is I. But then he goes on, he's not boasting, he's explaining that no one else can boast because he himself cannot boast. And he explains, if you recall, concerning excellency of Christ and the superiority of Christ, which is all what a Philippians is about. He speaks of the superiority of Jesus and the excellency of Jesus. And he goes on to explain that all of this, again, impressive resume that he had presented, saying, I was counting for all of these things to somehow stand as righteousness before God. But then he says, he goes on in the, in the very same chapter and verses following to stay, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, by, uh, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is of faith, the righteousness of God in Christ. This is the righteousness that I have. So Paul denounces all of his resume, everything he held to as saying, this is my righteousness I'll present before God, and says all of this, he says, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And he goes on to explain how he is pursuing after knowing Christ. This is the call and this is the reward. This is the, the purpose to win Christ, to know him. And so Paul is explaining that throughout this epistle of, of Philippians. He goes on to say, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say then, in, in verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Have you been brought to an understanding of the person and character of our high priest already, and have you been reminded of our complete dependence on him and need of him or for him, we are instructed now to consider him. He is the apostle, he is the high priest of our profession. Notice this, he is the apostle and high priest, not an apostle, he is the apostle. All the other apostles are simply shadows of the true apostle. They are just reflections of the true apostle. He is the true apostle. And the reference to apostle is that of messenger. It is Christ who is the message who has well brought himself the message to us. All the prophets of the Old Testament were continually declaring, thus saith the Lord. They were declaring God's message. Remember, the prophets represent God to man, and the priests represent man to God. But here we have Christ, who is prophet, priest, and king. He is the one who represents God to us. He's the one who represents us to God, and he is God in the flesh. He is the very son of God. So he is prophet, priest, and king. And this is, it's important for us to recognize that. He is the apostle. He is the high priest of our profession he is the message but he's also the messenger who brought the message the excerpt and that's what by the way that's what hebrews chapter one is all talking about when it says again god who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son and he's going on to say he's appointed him to be heir of all things he is lord over all and 
better than the angels, though humbling himself, become a man. He says he's better than the angels. And so here we see that he has now spoken unto us by his son, who is the very express image of his person, he says, which Colossians, of course, refers to Christ as the image of the invisible God. And also John refers to him as uh, the word was with God, the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, but then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we understand that in the word word, they're meaning literally that he is the divine expression. God is divinely communicated to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the word of God. He is the divine expression of God, the express image of his person, the, the image of the invisible God, that which has now been presented and manifested to man that God might be known by man as he never could have been known in any other way. And so we see that, that he is this message, but he also is the messenger who has brought this message himself to mankind. The revelation of God to man through the person of Christ. The exhortation to consider is a command and reminder for the reader to contemplate. This is not the only time that the writer of Hebrews instructs us to consider him. In Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, we are told, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now notice here, here the writer of Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus, he says the, he is the progenitor and he is the perfecter of faith. And by the way, our there is not, it's italicized, it's not talking about your, what you call faith. No, it's the faith, it's faith. He is the progenitor and the perfecter of faith. And then he goes on to say, who for the joy that was set before him, now know what he says about this Jesus, endured the cross. What are we talking about in Hebrews chapter 3? Considering he who is the faithful and merciful high priest who identified with man who suffered and died on our behalf for the atonement of man. God, man's, God's atonement for man. He paid the price. He, he took the wrath of God upon himself that we might be received and made accepted in the beloved, in Christ Jesus. So he says, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Wait a minute, where is he? At the right hand of the throne of God. And he's sitting there, which no high priest ever did when going into the most holy place, because he had no place to sit, not meaning there was a mercy seat, of course, that wasn't for him to sit. Place, of course, where God's mercy was being demonstrated to mankind. But he had to go in time and time again, year after year after year. Christ is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, beside the very throne of God the Father, and he sits there at the right hand. And by the way, let me interject this. This is very interesting. I wish I would have, have uh, had, had thought of this at the moment in preparing for this evening and brought this up. But I've done a study on this, and some of you will recall this, and it's very interesting to notice. When we speak of the right hand of God, go through the Old Testament, go through the Psalms, and look at the mention of God's right hand. And you know what you'll find? The power of God, the salvation of God, the deliverance of God, all of these things are represented by the right hand of God. Guess where Christ is? At the right hand of the Father. This is, again, speaking to us of Christ, where he is, who he is. And he is our salvation. He is our deliverance. He is the very authority and power of God the Father as manifested to, to mankind in him 
coming into the flesh and then now having a glorified flesh. And he, sit, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, which is, again, implying, as we know when all of this ties together, it's reminding us, it's making that implication of our high priest who has finished the work. So he's seated there because the work is done. And again, his presence is the intercession. Don't ever forget that. Jesus, again, is not seating there, seat, seated at the right hand of God and then pleading with the Father on our behalf. He doesn't have to. His pre- he is accepted of the Father. The Father is pleased with the work and finished redemptive work of the Son. And that being the case, His presence, as long as He is present with the Father, we are interceded for because He is our representative. We are represented in Him. He, we are identified in Him. So he is the intercessor. And so then he goes on to say, after speaking of him enduring the cross, despising the shame, being set down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be weird and faint in your minds. So here we're called to consider him, to contemplate him. The Hebrew writer is writing in an effort and with a desire to prepare these believers for the suffering, persecution, and even death that they would face. Hebrews 12.4 then goes on to say, the next verse, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Notice what he says here, ye have not yet. So there was going to be persecution that would continue to come, even to the point of death. And they were, he was saying, to the writer was saying, consider the one who is the faithful, merciful high priest, the one in whom you are identified, who identified with us. Consider him, contemplate him, because he is the example, of course, but he is the one who stands in our stead. He is the one who the Father sent on, for our redemption. And he says, you've not yet resisted unto blood. Christ died, and he brings that up here, the suffering of Christ. He died willingly under the, according to the purpose of the Father and the will of the Father, but you've not yet resisted unto blood striving against him, but it doesn't mean that you won't. And so in the day in which this letter to the Hebrews was written, the writer was concerned that these believers keep looking to Jesus, that they consider, contemplate him, that they, that, who endured temptation and suffering, lest they grow weary and faint in their own mind. And this was based on the persecution, against, again, that was taking place and that they themselves would inevitably face. Let's look at verses 2 through 6 together as we will conclude our study in this portion of the text this evening. He goes on to say in verse 2 of Hebrews 3, "...who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house." For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Here we are once again reminded that Christ is superior to all who came before. Although we find Moses, who was faithful, even spoken of here. He was faithful. Christ is even more faithful. It is Christ who alone is truly worthy of glory and honor and, and, and contemplation. For it is Christ who is the substance of all that Moses testified of and was an example of. Think of this for a moment with me. Moses led the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. But Christ has delivered us from the bondage of sin. Moses interceded during his life on behalf of Israel. Christ ever lives to make intercession for the believer. Moses was a servant of God, and as this, te- as this verse speaks, these verses, Christ is the very Son 
of God. So what are some examples of how Jesus is superior to Moses, which is what is being stated here? Christ is better than Moses. And by the way, remember, if there was somebody that the Jews were going to look to, of course, Abraham, but also Moses. Don't ever forget that. Moses brought the law, of course. Moses was used as as an instrument to deliver the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. And and Israel knew this. The, The Hebrews would have known this. They remembered this. They rehearsed this. They were very much aware of this. Christ is superior, first of all, in his office. Notice with him, Moses was a prophet of the law. John 1.17, we're told, For the law was given by Moses, but Christ is the apostle of grace. Verse 17 of John goes on to say, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now remember, what did the law do? The law never was intended to redeem, nor could it redeem. In fact, to really understand the law, you need to understand it according to the definition of it in Scripture. The law was not merely, as most people view it today seemingly, it was not merely a list of do's and don'ts. Recall with me that the law, if you don't forget this, the law is a declaration of the righteousness of God. God is saying, I am holy and I am righteous and I require and demand this and will accept nothing less than this. And also remember, as I've said to you many times, that when the people receive the law, as Moses comes off of Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, which is a summarization of the entirety of God's law. That is not the full law of God, but it's a summarization or generalization of the entirety of God's law. And in the Decalogue, you find, again, that, that, and let, let me summarize that for you, okay? Because Jesus even summarized it more than the Ten Commandments did in themselves as Ten Commandments. If you recall when Jesus was asked, uh, which, which, of the, which, of the, which law is the greatest? Remember? He said, which, which is the greatest? And Jesus says, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. Love thy neighbor as thyself. He said, he mentions the two. Well, why do he mention two laws? Whenever they said, which is the greatest of the laws? He said two, because the first portion, half or portion of the Decalogue is all about our view and our relationship towards God. And the last part of it is our relationship between men. So when Jesus says the the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself, he's not equating these two as saying to love God or to love your neighbor is as important as loving God. No, he's saying first love the Lord your God, which then will result if you truly love him and you loving your neighbor. And he's giving them the decalogue he is saying and they knew that See, we lose that we don't understand that most of the time most people who read that don't understand that he is giving them in a summarized version the ten commandments he's saying first you love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind then second love your neighbor as yourself which will be a result of loving god he's saying the second commandment is like unto it and he's not saying these are the only two commandments he's saying this is really the summarization of the decalogue which is a summarization of the entirety of god's law and so he's providing that for them to help them to see that. And so when we consider the law coming to the people on Sinai, when Moses came down from Sinai, you recall with me, when he brings the law to them, before he even was able to provide it, they thought Moses was dead, and they are all they tell Aaron to, to build them a calf, and Aaron goes and does this on behalf of the people, and he leads the people in that sense into this idolatrous worship of this calf that they made, saying, again, this calf has brought us out of Egypt. And so now they are worshiping the, fall, the calf and entering into all forms of immorality and sin for God. And Moses comes down from the mountain. He's holding the tablets. And what's he do? Breaks them. Why? 
He's frustrated, obviously, but in that we also are reminded that before the people ever received the law of God, they'd already broken it. They were already guilty. Before they even heard it, before they even received it, they'd already broken it. So the law, going back to what I was asking earlier, the law was not given to redeem man. The law is a declaration of God's righteousness and holiness. And remember, Paul teaches us in the New Testament that the reason God gave us the law was to teach us of our sin. And the law then drives us, it's a schoolmaster, to point us to Christ. Because we recognize that while the law is the declared righteousness of God, we can never measure up or live up to the law. We can't. But Christ is the righteousness of God manifested in the flesh. So the law is teaching us we cannot measure up to God's required standard, and it's pointless to try to. But Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is the fulfillment of that. So Christ is, if you will, the personification of the very righteousness of God. He is the righteousness of God demonstrated in the flesh. So he is superior in his office. Second, Christ is superior in his ministry. (coughs) Excuse me. Moses was called as a faithful servant, but Christ was sent as a faithful son. Five and six of our verses. And Moses was, verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house. In verse six, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing in the hope from and to the end? So we have to understand here, he says Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, but Christ was faithful as a son over over his own house, over his own house. And then he goes on to explain what this house is. He says, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope from to the end. This verse obviously is all scripture, but the verse must be kept within its context or it, there's, uh, people are prone to grossly misunderstand or misinterpret it. In the latter part of the verse, we read this. Whose house are we, verse 6, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope from unto the end. So, This verse is very similar to that which we find in the book of Romans, for instance. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we find a verse that has as well been misused due to lack of understanding or for the purpose and intent of supporting some preconceived notion or teaching. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. So in Romans 8, 1, for instance, when it says, Who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit, is not passage of scripture it is descriptive and so what it's saying is the verse it, it, it is not it's not saying that there's no condemnation if you walk in the spirit and not the flesh though that is true it's saying rather that there is no condemnation to those who are in christ jesus and those who are in christ jesus walk not after the flesh but they walk after the spirit so hebrews 3 6 is of the same nature here it's not saying that we will be made part of the house of Christ, the spiritual building or the church, if we hold fast until the end, but rather that the evidence of those who are part of this house, the church, God's spiritual building, will hold fast, they will continue. And so again, this has to do with the, the fact that understanding, just going back to other scripture, if you recall with me, even like uh, when you look at Philippians 2, 12 and 13, the latter part of verse 12, as you're aware, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13 clarifies that. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So we are working out, but we only are working out that which God has worked in. The evidence, the outward evidence 
the manifestation or the outward manifestation is the evidence of the inward working of God within the individual. Again, let me clarify or simplify it even more. We do not do righteously to obtain righteousness. But as believers in Christ, we have been declared righteous, and the very righteousness of Jesus has been imputed unto us, credited to our account. We had no righteousness, but his righteousness is now credited to us, and therefore that righteousness cannot just be, cannot just be uh, uh, hidden away and pinned up within us. It's going to manifest itself just as much so as the wickedness of the world is manifested due to the sinful nature in which they still exist and live without the presence of God and the righteousness within their hearts and lives. So, Ephesians 2 speaks to this, if you recall, when it says, you were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which now worketh in the children of disobedience. And he goes on to say, at times you walked in that same form, in that same wickedness, in that nature of those who are under the wrath of God. But the point is, he goes on in verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace you are saved. So here he's clarifying that we are redeemed and we are saved and we are delivered from that. Not again that we have no sin present with us, but that wickedness is now not the source of our life. It is Christ who is our life. It is Christ who is that source. So righteousness is now going to be demonstrated through us because righteousness is now within us. And so the same thing is true here. It's not, okay, well, he's over this house and you're part of that house. If you do this, then you're going to be included in this house. No, it's saying it's, it's descriptive in nature again, not prescriptive, because we know again, even as Scripture teaches in so many places, not only is it God that would work within us, but to will and do good pleasure, but as well, one six, being confident of this very thing, he which hath begun a good work, he will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. So if one is redeemed, it is we are kept by the power of God, but there will be evidence. Here's the point. There will be absolute definitive evidence within the life of every single person who's truly come to faith in Christ. There, it, it, it's going to be evident. There's going to be righteousness that is present. There's going to be a desired hunger after Christ and his truth to know him. And that's going to be within the life of the believer. And so, while this teaching is argued and debated by many, again, the teaching of Scripture is very clear. There's nothing more and nothing less than the clear evidence of the transformed life within this passage in reality. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, in the beginning of verse 18, you know these verses again, but therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, but all things are become new, and all things are of God. It doesn't say if, if, if... you know, you put away old things, then you'll be in Christ. No, if you are in Christ, you are transformed. You are a new creation. So we are not commanded to consider our faithfulness. That's what's so important here as well. Notice, he doesn't say, consider yourselves and your faithfulness. No, he says, consider the apostle and high priest of our calling. This is who we are considering. We're considering Christ. We are to consider the faithful high priest. We are to contemplate him. We are to meditate upon him. We are to keep him looking unto him. Keep, remember, keep our focus on him, remembering that it is Christ who is the beginner, the progenitor, it is Christ the author, it is Christ who is the perfecter of this faith, of this calling of God in which we live. So let us consider him, for he is better. 
Christ is better. That's the whole emphasis again. So consider he who is better. All the high priests of the Old Testament, God was just foreshadowing his son and the faithful and merciful high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. The temple was a shadow. The tabernacle of the temple was a shadow. That the, the place where God dwelt was among his people. And Jesus even told his disciples this, if you recall. He said, before his death, burial, and resurrection, he said to his disciples, he was going to send the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And he, many things about the Spirit of God, he would, he would, of course, lead them and guide them into all truth. He would bring to remembrance all things I've said unto you, Jesus says. But he also said, if you recall, concerning the, the Holy Spirit, he said, he is, he's dwelling among you, but then he said, he shall be in you. So at that moment, he was still among them, but he was not within them. But he said, he shall be in you. He's going to be within you. So all of that was a shadow of the truth that is in Christ. And so let us consider our high priest. Let us consider he who is faithful. And notice again, before I finish, that he doesn't say he is faithful high priest to us. He is faithful to the one who called him. So who is Christ faithful to? The Father and to the purpose of the Father. But we, because he identified with us, and now we are identified in him who are believers in Christ, we are benefactors of his faithfulness to the Father. So consider him, contemplate him, meditate upon him, our faithful, merciful, great, High priest. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to open the Word of God. This